Welcome to the Pathfinders Collective podcast, where we work with change makers in finance, NGOs, and businesses large and small to stare down the truth of the climate and the ecological crises and develop the courage to create bold new visions for the future. Visions and strategies so bold and beautiful, you'll be ready to weather the coming storms together. If you'd like to find out more about how to get started, please head on over to www.thepathfinders.co. Follow us on Instagram at The Pathfinders Co. Subscribe to our Substack and YouTube channel. And of course, keep listening to this podcast. In today's episode, Max and I met with Professor Tim Lenton, Director of the Global Systems Institute and Chairing Climate Change and Earth System Science at the University of Exeter and all-round climate hero. A mentee of James Lovelock, Tim carries on the torch of Gaia theory and Earth System Science, His work today has covered the ways in which many different Earth systems self-regulate and interconnect. His work has taken him from studying the nutrient balance of oceans to climate modelling, the evolution of life on Earth, as well as the identification of tipping points in past, present and future climatic systems, the kind that lead to significant accelerations in global heating in a non-linear fashion. Tim and his group at Exeter focus on understanding the Earth as a system, modeling evolution, ecology, and biogeochemistry, providing early warning of climate tipping points and identifying positive tipping points towards a better world. Recent papers from Tim highlight the existential threat posed by climate change to our entire civilization, which make for some truly sobering reading. However, he has also recently published work on positive tipping points, tipping points in society that lead to non-linear positive change, such as the move to electric vehicles in Norway or the spread of ideas across social media. This is my favourite episode of the podcast so far. Tim's knowledge across a huge number of disciplines is astounding and he embodies the very best science has to offer in that his thinking is meticulous, he's driven by a real sense of awe and reverence for the natural world, and he's thoroughly grounded in his humanity and connection with nature. Talking with him was a joy, and we couldn't ask for a better guide through these challenging and often overwhelming topics. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, so hold on to your seats as we stare down civilizational collapse and envision an ecological alternative that takes inspiration from Gaia herself. Welcome to the Pathfinders Collective. In preparation for us us meeting and, and talking about this, um, we've been looking at a lot of the climate science. We've been looking at the IPCC reports, and we've also been looking at a couple of your papers around climate tipping points um, and the future of the human climate niche. And I was just wondering if you could give us a bit of a um, an overview of the, the outputs of those papers and how, if at all, there might be differences between the IPCC and the tipping points in the future of the human climate niche? Um, Absolutely. So I think my work on the climate tipping points and the human climate niche would two different um, approaches, both of which would lead me to conclude that uh, we're we're rapidly heading into dangerous climate change already at 1.2 degrees centigrade of global warming. And uh, I'm not sure now that uh, two degrees centigrade of global warming could be construed as anywhere close to safe. I think it's quite clearly unsafe. Um, In fact, even at one and a half degrees C of global warming, which we're 
pretty much guaranteed to get and uh, now we're already um, taking on some big risks of triggering a, abrupt or, and or irreversible changes in the climate that will last for many generations to come or unfold over many generations to come. So yeah, that those are the kind of temperature numbers one gets, as I described it, from, from an understanding of the climate tipping point. But um, the human climate niche just asking the question of how many people are going to be put into uh, climate living conditions which hardly anybody experiences today or which, which can only support pretty meagre human population densities would also suggest that we can't go anywhere near three degrees C of global warming because that would be, a, would be a complete catastrophe. You could have three billion people pushed into temp mean annual temperatures that no one bar a few spots on the Sahara occasionally pass through by nomads uh, get to experience. So um, I'm not back translated exactly. You know, it's hard to draw a firm line at what point does the shift of the human climate niche become intolerable. But um, we're doing some ongoing work on that and trying to get a bit more granularity to it. And again, it would things already... Um, look look uh, da pretty dangerous, certainly if you go to two degrees of warming. So yeah, that's the take-home message really, that uh, meeting the uh, aspiration of the Paris Climate Agreement to limit warming to one and a half degrees centigrade is kind of essential for uh, limiting existential risks to us, to us all really. But unfortunately to some before others and often to those most poorer or more vulnerable before others. I noticed in, in one of your papers you made reference to um, economists suggesting that a three degrees temperature east would be the best from a cost-benefit analysis. I was just wondering where's, where does that understanding come from? Is that any particular economists or just like the, the well, inference of what action has happened to date? That particular argument and number can be attributed to William Nordhaus at Yale, Nobel Prize winner. In, well, I say Nobel Prize winner. Actually, technically, it's the Sveriges Reichsbank Prize in memory of Alfred Nobel. It's not technically the Nobel Prize in Economics, although everybody describes it as such. But, uh, yeah, Bill Nordhaus, who's done many great things in his career, obviously, otherwise he wouldn't be a laureate, has you know, quite openly and to some of us infamously um, argued for that kind of temperature level being the best compromise, because in his model of the world, his assumptions about how climate damages go up with temperature um, are not ones I would agree with. And um, in a standard formulation of the model, they require something like, what was it? could be 16 degrees centigrade or something of warming before you completely annihilate the economy, which is obviously patently wrong to anyone who knows anything about the climate. Plus, he's making some assumptions about how mitigating climate change inevitably is going to cost money, and it's going to cost more and more the lower you want to hold the temperature. But one can make even a counter-argument to that now, that with the rapid diffusion of renewable energy technologies, there's a path to possibly greater green economic growth um, that, that isn't, you know, overall more costly 
um, and is part and parcel of limiting warming to, to well below two degrees C. So he gets to his number by kind of taking the minimum of two assumed curves, um, neither of which I think I would uh, I would uh, agree with his assumptions about. <laughs> so, and anyway, you can't treat it as a scientist, and in my view, as a deterministic problem like that. You can't pretend that you know how the damages can, from climate change vary as a function of temperature precisely. None of us know that precisely. We have some knowledge, um, but we need to treat it as, to some degree, what we would call stochastically uncertain. And, it has, and then, yeah, the same almost goes for the, this idea that, well, I just fundamentally disagree with this idea that, you know, it's always going to cost more the more you want to abate or mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. That is, as my friend Simon Sharp in the Cabinet Office describes it, it's like the ancient parable of, I think it was Sisyphus in the mythology, who has to push a boulder up a hill. Um, and the further he's trying to push it, the steeper the hill's getting. And that's literally the kind of um, cost curves that economists are regularly assuming in their standard approach. So this is essentially what's called neoclassical economics. And some of us who admittedly confess not to being specialists trained in economics, but having a good mathematical grounding, take one look at that framework and think that its philosophical assumptions are just fundamentally flawed. <laughs> and I'm one of those people. <laughs> uh, well, likewise, um... We talk a lot about um, ecological economics or donor economics or circularity and so on, which for me is basically a paradigm change um, in the sense that we currently live in a model where the economy assumes that the environment is a subsystem of itself, where in actual fact the economy is a subsystem of the environment. And for me, that's kind of like a Copernican ship in, 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 in yeah. how we're thinking entirely and possibly one of the reasons why we're in this mess in the first place, because that's our worldview, and it just doesn't stack up to, to reality. You said it very nicely, Rob, exactly. But it's it's part and parcel of a wider worldview, or called, we would be loosely called modernism, you know, the whole enterprise, really, of that came out of the, the, the many positive things and the development of, of science out of natural philosophy and technology. But economics, Adam Smith and the rest, kind of grew up in bed or together with the notion of that scientific, technological, uh, modernist vision of progress um, in a mechanistic universe, mm. a sort of Cartesian universe. And um, actually, it wasn't as bad when it started. I mean, Adam Smith devotes a lot of writing space to considering what the steady state, the eventual steady state of the economy should look like. But as with all these things, the neos, the people who follow the founders, kind of get into a more extreme flavour of what they started. And well, I totally agree with you. We've ended up with um, the mainstream that's used in, in serious decision-making being, in my view, completely the wrong worldview. And it's high time to address that. Mm. Can I just ask, go back a sec, because I just realised we didn't quite cover it. Um, when we're talking about the, um, the the data that you present so often, and then the IPCC, what's going on with mm -hmm. the IPCC? Um, because everybody globally is looking to that um, to better understand the situation. 
I've had conversations with people that have worked on the IPCC. They've told me that um, we'll be incredibly lucky to get to 1.7, 1.8, yet in the same breath, mm -hmm. they seem completely fine with that and that, that, that there's nothing to worry about. And I find a real dissonance in that. And that's part of one of the reasons why I've recently gone down this rabbit hole of trying to really understand what's going on. Because as a member of the public, not an academic, it's quite confusing. Well, it will depend on the scientist. I mean, it's it's a broad church, the IPCC, even if we're all nominally climate researchers. So we'll have a spectrum of views as to what the level of the risks are. And some people will be, you know, like all, like much of science, scientists are generally specialists in fairly narrowly defined areas. I'm probably not the norm in that regard, for good or for ill, a bit more of a generalist or polymath. Um, more broadly, I think the concern is around the nature of the sociological process and the rules of IPCC. Remember, it is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so the government representatives have some degree of veto on the content of, for example, the summaries for policymakers. So I can give a, few, what, a famous example, not, not from the latest round, but from the fifth assessment report. Um, there was a study already in the literature showing that in physiologically intolerable um, hot and humid conditions could become quite widespread in a sort of business as usual climate change scenario. Um, and certainly the UK delegation and others had that, wanted to keep that in the summary for policymakers of the fifth assessment report, but that was um, actually just ruled out on a technicality because it was only one study, even though it was in a highly reputable journal, thoroughly peer-reviewed, it could not be included. Now, there are many other cases where um, particular countries argue content out of the summary for policymakers, so one must read the summary for policymakers with that knowledge that it's politically influenced. Beyond that, though, we have a broader cultural thing going on. Like, as climate scientists, we've been taking a lot of flack for about 30 years from well-funded, vested interests in the fossil fuel-powered status quo, trying to discredit and undermine everything we have to say um, through all sorts of, um, you know, professional communication, uh, etc. means. So we've naturally got backed into a corner where at least quite a lot of my colleagues are reluctant to talk about the more inherently uncertain stuff like tipping points, um, partly because they just want to anchor on the really simple, solid 19th century physics of global warming that, you know, the sceptics really can't legitimately launch into, but also because there's a general trend, at least until recently, that a lot of the climate science community didn't want to get accused of alarmism or for, or for paying attention on the tail risks, as they get called, and they saw it their remit, they saw their remit to be to focus on what's the most likely thing to happen, the centre of the distribution. The big problem with that line of thinking is it's really bad risk management to focus on answering the question or what do I think is most likely to happen when there's considerable uncertainty and out in the tails are some really bad outcomes? Any good risk manager so deploys quite a lot of attention on trying to get a handle on 
on those what they call tail risks in the distribution. And I'm like in that school, I'm like, I don't know if it's just intuitive in me, but I always got it that, you know, in a, you know, it's not alarmism to look at um, these tipping points and irreversible changes and et cetera, et cetera. It's just sense of, it's just common sense risk assessment. But we, I'm fighting against a broader culture in climate science sometimes of, that really is, uh, goes against that. I have, to say, I have to say things have softened a bit as the evidence has come in over the last decade, though. I think the IPCC has gone from people really attacking me for talking about those things, the tipping points, etc., to a much more migration towards this risk framing and much more appreciation that maybe climate science took the wrong tack. And this is probably because we're feeling collectively a bit less vulnerable in terms of the eternal denier skeptic lobby, they're still there, they'll never go away. But I think they might win the old battle, but I think they might have lost the war, if you know what I mean. I'm currently getting trolled Facebook. The the, page, you know, the article... This is why I'm not on social media. Yeah. It's like, I, I think if I, if I showed up there for five minutes, I know I kind of have a gut sense of what's going to happen. I'll get absolutely hammered and it'll just be unpleasant. And why? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, if, if you ever want to share any messages, send them to me. Yeah, I'll, send I'll them by you. You're a brave man. Well, I, yeah. I'm, I'm too far gone. I don't care anymore. So it's absolutely fine. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I'm getting trolled like mad for that that recent blog post about, you know, revolution or collapse. And um, I'm aghast um, in terms of like the comments that are underneath that. Like there there are three schools of thought in there. One is that it's all an absolute load of bollocks. Um, Second, it's all we're all doomed and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, Or third Mm -hmm. is people actually engaging and saying, no, there are things that you can do. And um, mm-hmm. we can limit it even if we can't stop it. And the, the discourse between the three is like one is clearly well informed and, and hopeful and, and likes to engage. The other ones, I, I equate them to each other. They're, they're, they're different forms of denial. One is like, yeah, it's too far gone. There's nothing I can do. The other is it's not even happening. Um, it's been quite yeah. enlightening to even be able to have that conversation now. Like I thought those conversations were done a long time ago. But anyway. <laughs> Um, bit of a strange question, but at what point did you realise that um, civilization itself um, is in potential uh, risk of collapse? When was that? It's tempting to say, if I was honest, there would always have been some probability of that in my mind as I grew up and trained as a scientist, because if you if you're a general scholar, you know every civilization has collapsed. So you, at some level, you would have that as your default assumption. You just don't know what the probability is. You know that we're going to go at some point. But in terms of climate change being a key part of a serious risk of triggering collapse, um, I kind of I don't. It's hard to place a time when I didn't think that that was a possibility. It's just that the probability is. Um, probably gone up markedly in my head, if that makes any sense, because I always think probabilistically about the world, that's what you're trained, if, you, if you're if you instinctively a scientist, and especially if you're trained as a scientist, I believe that's how you should, how, you're, how you will and you should see the world is, is, in a, is in probabilistic terms. So if we were to come to the question of God, for example, you'd, you'd be, as a Jim Lovelock said to me, 
well, I can't really claim to be an atheist because that would be certainty that God doesn't exist. And that's probably not a very scientific position. Better to be an agnostic of the view that the probability is very low in the case of God. But yeah, for civilization collapse, it's more a case of the more you research this stuff, the more evidence comes in from the planet, especially in the last decade or two, um, the more, the, unfortunately, the probability dial sort of swings. And, and the more we dither and don't act, the more the probability dial swings <laughs> upwards, as it were. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get at, was there any particular point where the, you know, may, maybe in your case, then it was this more sort of gradual frog in the pan of slowly heating water rather than, for, for, for me and some others, it does seem to be like there's quite a jump. Um, and I think in, what I'm trying to get at is, how did that make you feel when you started to understand that the, yeah. these things are growing in probability? Well, I mean, there's a concrete example where my own probability assessment might have changed quite sharply. It was when we did the work on the human climate niche and we crunched the numbers and we stared at these maps of the three degree warmer world with nine or whatever billion people in it. And we were looking at these vast areas through like the Sahel, Nigeria, a very populous country, most of the Indian subcontinent, going to these extraordinary temperatures in the mean and, and knowing that the extremes would be pretty pretty horrendous on the top of that. And just, you couldn't look at that, look at the numbers and not think, well, people are not, if they've got the option, they're not just not going to stay there and try and tough it out because that's not an option. They're going to want to move to come and live with us, you know, in simple terms. <laughs> Now, I love to believe that we're going to grow up as a society and we're going to welcome in tens, hundreds and hundreds of millions of climate um, migrants and move, our, move ourselves as well across the face of the world and do so in a kind of grown-up manner where we realise that we can, you know, we can welcome people in and still build a thriving future together. But all the evidence is to the contrary when a couple of million Syrian refugees caused the kind of rise of neo-Nazi sentiment in Germany, the response of Hungary, the response of some many people in this country, the UK. You just think, well, we haven't got we haven't grown up enough to to even begin to um to address and welcome and re and respond constructively mm -hmm. to a major re redistribution of people across the planet. Ergo, I couldn't see any way that it wouldn't just end in a a very brutal and messy kind of social breakdown. I don't want to describe what form, but <laughs> so I looked at that and I was like, whoa, we cannot go there. Uh, we can't go anywhere near that. Um, and yet we were, stu we're still heading on current, you know, current actual action and commitment towards heading towards, you know, three degrees C. Mm -hmm. So um, that was pretty sobering. How did I feel? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I was already in a pretty occasionally dark place because of the work on the tipping points, but it suddenly was like a double whammy, really. It was like, look at your kids who are gonna, uh, might have to live through that uh, or or not live through it, as it were. Um, and it's uh, it's hard to describe, really. You, all you can do is try and um, think about how to put your own energies into not going there. And in my case, that meant shifting my energies to work on the positive tipping points, all the things that could accelerate the change we need to avoid going there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. That's the rash it, it I'm a rationalist, so that was my <laughs> my response. <laughs> um yeah. I, I came across the, the uh, Future of the Human Climate Niche paper because it's getting passed around quite a lot in activist circles. And I was just wondering, mm -hmm. do you have any connection with any um, activist circles or movements, or do you partake in any kind of climate activism yourself? Well, I've talked, I've given talks to XR scientists, I think they're called at the moment, and some other XR groups. I've, I've actually been part of a meeting of, XR, um, me really as a science representative and the several members of the finance sector in the City of London in a beautiful little church there. <laughs> um, so do I go out and wave placards and protest in that way? Not, not, not very often, but I fully support the protests. Mm. <laughs> if you can, you can be said to support, if you can be said to to have empathy and sympathy with the protests without actually participating, um, then I do. Um, well, just thinking yeah. in terms of positive tipping points as well, like um, one of the stated aims of Extinction Rebellion and of Insulate Britain as well is this notion that if we can get 3.5% of the UK population to partake in civil disobedience, then we can hit a tipping point, which would then lead to you know, widespread change. Um, I don't know if yes, you that. Yeah, I, well, I didn't know that precise figure, but I'm well aware that one of the co-founders of XR understood this because this tipping point logic and really framed the design of actions through it. Mm -hmm. And I've been very interested in that actually that they got it and they were you, you, they were trying to operationalize the positive tipping, as I call it, already. And um, you know, a good uh, I was going to say good luck to them or. I think that's great at some basic level. Um, do I have any reservations? Well, I mean, each to their own. I, I think the only issue I had, at least earlier on with some of the movement, was like every movement knows what it's against, but wasn't so clear what it was for. Or So that, at a fundamental level, was, yeah, yeah, of course we're against the current status quo, but that's not going to rescue us from trouble unless we can clearly articulate what we're for and, and the beginnings of a journey to get to here, from here to there. And that's why I would perhaps choose, rather than spend the given amount of time on the march, actually trying to work hard on, well, what what is that vision of where we want to go that we want to protest for, not just what we want to protest against? And also, what are some tools we can use to identify yeah, what I call the positive tipping points to get us on on the trajectory and the journey from here to there. But the, like all movements, it, it, it grows and it develops. And, and certainly you could argue with Insulate Britain that they've picked a particular constructive target that they're for and they're just trying to get political movement on it. So, yeah, go for it, that's I would say. Um, in, in terms of, we, we talked about positive tipping points a fair bit then, so let's let's go to that. Um, in some of the seminars that I've seen you do online, you mention electrification of infrastructure and transport and so on. But can you just like give us both a bit of a flavour of the sorts of tipping points that you've been working on? I know there was that one with electric cars in Norway. Um, yeah, you want to talk about that or any other tipping points that you, you want to yes. highlight? Yes, I started on a couple of ones which are sort of energy and transport and technology. 
And one can always pick some holes, at least in the electric vehicle one, which we'll come to. But uh, one of the clearest ones that's happened in the UK is we've shut coal burning out of power generation within less than the last decade. It was 40% of electricity in 2012, when it's 1% or something roughly now. And of course, that was done in that case by policy intervention, putting a an additional price on carbon emissions purely in the power generation sector, in addition to the EU price that was fluctuating and rather low. And shifting investor expectations was part of that. But it's what started as something that would make would be enough of a carbon price to temporarily trigger gas to be the first fossil fuel to go for, and not coal, which would otherwise be cheapest, turned out to have all these irreversible consequences. Um, it caused the investors to pull out of coal because the economics were going bad, and then it caused the utilities to pull out by destroying coal-powered stations, which is still happening. And that, okay, that's like a government thing, uh, you might say. But, I mean, it's pretty uh, impressive. We've achieved the, the fastest rate of decarbonisation uh, of any country in the world, thanks to that, largely. And so we should be right, we should be shouting about that, and we should be proud of it. Now, the electric vehicles, I concentrated, I guess you'd say, on cars, and I concentrated with Simon Sharp, my collaborator in the Cabinet Office, on the case study of Norway. How had, how had Norway come to um, have a tipping point for electric vehicle uptake ahead of the rest of us? And again, there's a strong role for policy, uh, as well as real social innovators and, and uh, environmentalists at the very start. Um, but a lot of clever, clever policy intervention and incentives that make uh, basically an electric vehicle the the economically sensible option, but also socially preferable in all sorts of ways. And the point about positive tipping points is you you start them going, and then as a technology starts to escalate, you get what's called economies of scale. The more solar panels or electric cars or batteries you make, the cheaper it gets to make the next one. And so renewables, particularly wind power and solar, are also great examples of these really um, almost exponentially growing now economies of scale, and that's all to the good. I would concede that there's, there's electric vehicles aren't perfect, and we can talk about that mm. if you want in a minute. But but to answer the question more broadly, I just don't I don't want to just fixate on energy and, and transport and technology, although they're obviously fundamental to emissions. I think it's really important to talk about food and land systems and diet. So I've spent quite a lot of time in the last year looking at prospective positive tipping points for transforming diet um, and trans alternative proteins, all sorts of all sorts of things that basically can radically reduce the land and climate impacts of, of all of us eating. Um, and then I'm interested in pure positive tipping points of forming social movements and collectives, which obviously we've just been talking about and we're seeing more instances of that. And then um, riffing off the whole food and diet thing, I'm really interested in how we work with other species whether we're gonna, whether they're part of a food system or not, because once you're working with other species that are already in ecosystems with lots of 
self-reinforcing feedback loops, you can work with those feedback loops to tip things in a good direction and not necessarily have them tip in a tragic, degrading direction. So that should just give a bit of a flavour. This is quite a general framework, um, a set of concepts, but that, so that that's useful because that can be applied across the spectrum because mm. we know that we have to kind of transform the whole ultimately of our society and the way we live. So you need some pretty generic <laughs> tools to help you with that. Yeah. Have you done any modeling um, as to what the impact on um, emissions and therefore on possible uh, mean average temperature increases could be if there were certain tipping points? So for example, if we took some of the tipping points that you've that you've already highlighted and said, yeah. oh, that happens in the UK, that happens in America, that happens over in Asia. If we do these things, then this could be possible. Well, my friend and colleague, Jean-Francois Mercure, has probably done more of the actual modelling on, certainly on the energy system than I have, and there are other groups doing it as well. But as, en as energy or power is so fundamental to the whole of uh, society, the economy and everything else, it's kind of a good place to start. and that JF, I'm going to call him, JF's team's model has this, it's not a conventional economic model, it has this um, innovation, learning going on, and it has the relevant information on how the price of solar PV panels and wind and so on is, is just carrying on down and down and down. And it means that already, even absent climate policy, you see this radical transformation of the energy system coming. In fact, it's really starting to kick in over the next decade um, anyway, because renewables are just becoming the cheapest option. Um, so where does that lend you up? It means even without saying climate policy, the future doesn't look quite as bleak as it did. But obviously, if you have uh, policy incentives and action, you can um, bring things to happen sooner in this, this fundamental change in power, power supply for civilization to happen even quicker. And once you get, once you're flooded with very cheap renewable electricity, of course, there's a logic that we'll then follow through and we will choose to electrify transport and maybe we'll split water to make hydrogen where hydrogen fuel cells are more sensible for goods or whatever. But the point is you've, you've just anchored on a fundamentally on a switch to renewable power supply. And that's one of the most optimistic things we can talk about is that's coming. It's just how quickly it's coming. Mm -hmm. uh, we want it to come sooner. So yeah, I can't give you, I can't reverse back out and give you an exact number of how that would translate back to temperature. But what I think it does do, if you believe the assumptions and the trends going in, is it, I think it makes a world of gratuitous fossil fuel burning and all, you know, burning what we already know is in the ground seem an unlikely one, even on economic grounds, mm -hmm. because it's just simply renewables will get to the point where it's, it's not just what economists call a new for new comparison. You know, should I build a new coal power station or some equivalent power generation from wind or the sun? We're getting quite soon, within a decade in like China, to the where the new for old comparison stacks up, and it makes sense to shut down one of those recently built Chinese coal power stations and replace it with new renewables plus 
battery storage, which is going ever cheaper. So yeah, that I think we've if we buy that buy that argument and the evidence, then that's good. It tells us we're unlikely, thank God, or thank guy or thank whoever, <laughs> we're unlikely to end up in that world where we burn what's in the ground. In other words, there's going to be a massive stranding of fossil fuel asset, whether you like it or not, and whether your pensions invested in fossil fuel companies or not. You, it's not. No lobbyist now, I think, is going to be out. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's happening. Um, and even absent climate policy, JF's calculations have, was it something like $7 trillion of stranded fossil fuel asset that will just stay in the ground? Stuff that those companies thought they were going to be able to burn and make a buck on, they're not going to. Mm -hmm. I've had um, uh, Mark Campanale at Carbon Tracker I've read a lot of his work around stranded mm. assets and so on, and I yeah, I, I love his work and what he's up to. Um, you mentioned also uh, the, working with the cabinet office there. So one of the queries I've got at the moment is given a, given all the information that that we've got, given all the work that you've done, um, mm -hmm. yet we still have such such inaction, and I'm trying to get my head around why that is. And you're saying that you're working with the cabinet office. What is the government's actual understanding of the science? Are we talking about a situation where, and this has come up recently for me in discussions with friends. I've got, mm -hmm. I've got one friend who has said, you need to read this book called States of Denial. Um, and yeah. it talks about how people, are you aware of that book? Heard of it, yeah. not read it. So, yeah. so the, the, in that book, it talks about genocide. It talks about child abuse, all sorts of terrible things. It even talks about how people could walk people into the gas chambers, but still be yeah. disassociated from it. Um, versus another friend of mine who said, ah, you need to read um, uh, The Nutmeg's Curse, which basically talks about um, how this is all this imperial colonial power movement, and actually what we're seeing play out is this last man standing. Um, they know that climate change is coming, um, but because of vested interests in, in power and in not keeping that wealth in the ground, they're accepting that these things are going to happen. So we've got two different, um, you know, yeah. stories going on well, here. And I just wanted, from your perspective, who, when you've had interactions with government or with, you know, power, mm -hmm. what, what's your read? Why the inaction? Well, the thing to remember is government is not one uniform thing where everyone's got the same hymn sheet and they're singing from it. I mean, my interactions quite specifically are with Simon Sharp, who is in, he is in the Cabinet Office and the COP26 team and has been the Deputy Director for campaigns and for the ongoing for the COP26 team. But that's so he's a senior civil servant and a brilliant one at that. And he's there with Nigel Topping as our climate envoy and others who totally get the stuff we're talking about. Is that the same thing as saying that Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak totally get it? No. <laughs> those those are those are poli elected politicians with their own whatever agendas they've got and their own skills or lack of them so we can't there's no one way there's no sense in which we can talk about government in a sort of singular thing we might be able to distinguish government in the sense of the civil service and politicians even if we did that even within the civil service we'd have to distinguish well do the people in the Treasury get it in the same way that some of the people in the Cabinet Office get it? Of course they don't. In fact, there's a sort of 
I don't know it that well to be sure that this is the case, but my outsider's perspective would be there's a sort of battle of worldviews going on there. You surf some positive movements from the Treasury in terms of bringing, valuing other broader valuation than, that includes nature and uh, broader considerations starting to get into the green book, as it's called, that sets the rules for public spending. But it's a pretty slow and torturous process, as it were, to get to get something that really matters, like the Green Book, um, up with the times, as it were, <laughs> or with this different worldview. So that kind of ideological, or whatever you want to call it, um, discourse, battle, whatever, is going on between different bits of government, I, I think, with my outsider's perspective, um, in, because the government is this diverse entity, and the politicians, well, they're, they're a separate animal again, right? Unless they're very, very special, and we've seen a few examples on the international stage who, who prove to be quite special, but they don't come around that often. Unless they're very special, they don't have whatever it is to put the longer-term and more collective good ahead of their own short-term vested interest. It, it's a rare politician that does that, and we probably name a few of them on a few hands, right? Because it's not the norm. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of a rambling perspective. But if you want to take some comfort from it, there are people who get this kind of systems thinking and who are there shaping the COP26 agenda and process. And they've been instrumental in getting things like the, what's called the Breakthrough Agenda signed up to by many, many nations, a real roadmap for how to have these positive tipping points for economic technological change to decarbonize. So I'm sure my friend Simon Sharp had a, had a big hand in that. So that's incredibly encouraging. Um, at the same time, you could look at a different bit of the political <laughs> government peace and get very depressed. Um, and I don't probably need to elaborate on examples there. Um, so what are, we, what are we saying? We're effectively saying that, well, liberal democracy is not perfect. <laughs> uh, but why aren't politicians acting? Their usual excuse would be they're not being given a strong enough man mandate from the people who elect them into or out of power to act. I personally think that that's probably a bit of a cop out on their part. And that the surveys, etc., and the evidence would suggest you, me, the three of us, um, we're part of poss quite possibly a silent majority that really, not or not so silent majority that thinks we want to see much more decisive action on these fundamental issues. It's just somehow um, that isn't trickling through. Uh, maybe we, maybe we aren't putting our voting money where our mouth is. Who knows? Um, but yeah, that's the disconnect at the moment. So I take some comfort. Oh, do you mind if I jump in? Um, do you hold out hope or probability of a mechanism for a positive tipping point in policy? That perhaps one well, I, 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 in one country, suddenly Europe follows, the rest of Europe follows, for example. I do, Max, because of those, because of the nature of the tipping dynamics, things sort of have to start somewhere, but then they can spread contagiously, they can cascade in these particular conditions for that to happen. But we, we shouldn't be expecting everywhere to change multilaterally at once. It's bound to be the case that there'll be leaders and there'll be laggards. 
But the leaders are the ones who are leading partly because they're smart enough to have worked out that in their small group coalition, they've got to, if they are the first to move, they've got the greatest to gain. Um, and for sure, the ex, the Saudis or whoever might be the last to, you know, the last to come on board. But that's the nature of the dynamics. It doesn't mean that um, you can't have escalating transformative change happen. And that's why we, Simon and I would have chosen to anchor on case studies where at a national scale, we started to see really profound tipping change in, in sectors, that really big sectors that really matter for emissions, for example. And then we discuss, well, which co small group coalition of other actors, countries, however you want to, jurisdictions, however you want to think of it, have a vested interest in getting behind that transformation that's starting and making it happen sooner. And we're even explicit about who that is for electric vehicles and for sort of moving out of coal power. So, yeah, I have hope because I don't, because I see the, the dynamics in maybe in a different way um, to the mainstream and that it's perhaps an educational task to get mainstream thinking engaging with um, the way that change can happen. It might breed a little less despair amongst some of, <laughs> some of you or some of us, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, we might have deluded ourselves. We were spent many years trying to push for a multilateral binding action on climate that was so weak it wasn't going to make any difference anyway, and it was the Kyoto Protocol. And then we shift to this non-binding, unilateral, not nationally determined contributions fiasco at the other end of the scale. Well, surprise, surprise, if that doesn't really mm. cut the mustard. But there's a lot in between, and that's those two polar opposites. And the smart, the smart thinking, I think, is around, yeah, these win-win situations for small, whether coalitions of first movers. Um, yeah. So we need to come back to you, Rob. We need clearly we need some uh, powerful elected leaders who are smart enough to understand that. And they aren't everywhere, but there are some. Mm -hmm. Um, you touched upon um, systems thinking just um, in, that, in that conversation that, that heartened me to know that there are people who, who grasp systems thinking and can apply that within, you know, in, within the world, which is good. Um, let's stay with that for a little bit. I'd love to just listen to you talk about Gaia and Gaia hypothesis Great. and systems thinking, if you wouldn't mind. Um, at what point did you find Gaia? At what point did you bump oh, into yeah. this idea that, oh, hang on a minute, yeah, okay, self-regulating interdependent systems, what's that? Yeah, well, I was uh, 18. I'd gone from comprehensive school up to Cambridge University. I was kind of chuffed that I'd made it in um, to Cambridge. And then I had the shock of my life in various different ways. I mean, it's not easy there um, trying to get your head around the, the maths and physics and special relativity and all that, but that was okay. I was kind of just knuckling down. You'd gone, you'd worked your socks off, you know, um, to get there. And the best thing that the University of Cambridge could offer as a career trajectory for a natural scientist was something like chemical engineering. It was just like, I was already someone who spent a lot of my childhood outdoors and growing up, 
you know, hiking in mountains on my own with with friends and scouts and whatever. I love the natural world. It was, you know, it was part and parcel of me. I was sensitized in 1991. We knew about global warming. We knew about Amazon deforestation. We were watching the global agreement on trades and tariffs. We were protesting, by the way, against that at the time. Um, all these issues were there. And it was was kind of depressed uh, after a term at university, thinking, "This isn't, you know, this isn't good enough. I this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to be a chemical engineer or whatever." And then my dad, who's, who was a who was a scientist, um, gave me Jim Lovelock's books on Gaia and the Ages of Gaia at just the right moment, and I was like, I read it. I was like, "Bam, that's it. This this is this is the way I see the world anyway." And why is this guy get, getting such a hard time? <laughs> Basically, why is Lovelock getting all this flack? I mean, if you just take the mythological name out of the equation, if that offends you, why is he getting all this flack for this 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 incredible sort of intuition and uh, he's had about this different worldview and the evidence he's started to stack up for it? Well, I can rehearse why he was getting a lot of flack, but let's just run with it for now. I, for me, it was... It was just brilliant. It was like um, it landed in me in a very formative time and it was bang on. And I, in his second book, he finishes talking about the earth. We need some we need some practitioners of planetary medicine. Is there a doctor out there? Question mark. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I want to do. I kind of knew I want I had science was my kind of calling and I knew I wanted to throw myself into that. So I wrote to Jim Lovelock. I said, oh, look, you know, this is me. Loved your book. That's what I want to do. I want to finish my degree and do research on this stuff. Oh, so you um, wrote to him. You wrote to him. Yeah, yeah, still wrote, an undergrad. I wrote to him as a first year undergraduate, aged eighteen, and uh, just saying, "Look, I want to. This is what I want to research when I finish my degree." And uh, bless him, he's a pretty humble, wonderful human being, and he wrote back. And um, we, I come from Nailsey near Bristol. He was living down near um, the border of Devon and Cornwall, Launceston at the time. He said. Oh yeah, yeah. I can give you a few pointers. I don't think I can be your supervisor, but I'd love you know come down and meet and that's you know that. So that summer of 1992, when I just turned 19, I went to see him, and I don't know. We just hit it off immediately. I mean, you just click with some people, don't you? So, so I from that point on, I was I was just trying to kind of temper my frustration with the natural sciences tripos or whatever by really immersing myself on the side in in this 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 alternative worldview that was starting to form and what were the scientific challenges we needed to tackle and to pick off. One of our biggest issues was around um, evolutionary biology and the, the neo-Darwinists and their view of the world. You know, remember we just come through the 1980s, Thatcherism, Richard Dawkins' selfish gene, blah, 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 blah. Any talk of cooperation or or the evolution of more complex entities was a complete no-no and was getting shouted down from all sides. So, yeah, the battle lines intellectually were kind of drawn, but I was, you know, up for up for just um, throwing myself into that. And, yeah, had some fun with friends, Tom Wakeford at Cambridge, Tom Crompton. We formed a group called Science for the Earth at Cambridge. We had Lynn Margulis, the wonderful Lynn Margulis, come and speak at our first meeting. We never got Jim there, but we did further meetings with Chris, Sir Chris Pinter-Kell, Andy Watson, other other Gaia systems thinkers. Um, 
and it was exciting and it was generative. And yeah, I, Andy became my PhD supervisor. I started a PhD 1994 down in Plymouth Marine Laboratory. I was able to go and visit Jim Lovett once a month and I could start to work with him on, and both of them on, on articulating, well, what are these self-regulating mechanisms that stabilize the oxygen content of the atmosphere, the nutrient balance of the ocean, the climate, the carbon cycle on long time scales. I was cutting my teeth building these little models of this, these regulatory systems and also trying to build these evolutionary models of daisy worlds and the like. It was tremendous fun. It was out on a limb. It was absolutely against a lot of the scientific consensus, but it was a great training in understanding the principles of of complex systems and feedback and evolution and how they all intersect. And it's been kind of my 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 task ever since, I suppose, to carry on that that work. So yeah, um Gaia for me is this yeah, it's just a, a, a the alternative worldview to the predominant one of this modernist tradition. So in a sort of pastiche cartoon form and we've come through a few hundred years of the of a modernist program where is the world is assumed to be some sort of quasi machine kind of clockwork thing um and in and nature what is nature god knows in that view of the world but in mostly we don't care because we just take from it whatever we want and we 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 don't we don't give it any proper value well there's this completely different worldview that's connected to the Gaia hypothesis but loads of other scientific traditions now and it's all about articulating hold on a minute this is our life support system we couldn't be here breathing an oxygen rich atmosphere in an equable climate were it not for the actions of past and present life forms mostly microbes let's try and understand that wow what are all these incredible you know reinforcing feedback cycles through which they cycle all the elements that we all need to flourish um and then how do they also create these these damping feedback cycles that tend to stabilize the high oxygen level in the atmosphere and stabilize the climate on long time scales and so on. Well, you, you do 20 odd years of that stuff like I have, and it's just fantastic. It's on the one hand, it's, it never ceases to be kind of mind blowing. Um, but on the other, it's like you've been given the gift. You've been, it's like having just suddenly, yeah, you're just seeing the world. I think, I think I'm seeing it through different, I conclude I must be seeing it through different eyes to many, many people just because of the, the luck, the luck, the privilege, the whatever of my particular journey. And of course, then I see it as part of my job in inverted commas or my calling to try and explain a little bit of this, <laughs> convey a little bit of this, this worldview around, share it around a bit because we, we need it. If we're going to get out of the, mm -hmm. we're in a massive mess because we, we, we ran with the other worldview, um, possibly to the point of our own destruction, but weirdly this is the quirk of science and um and the quirk of the enlightenment is that you know it, it has found our way back to what many people would say is perhaps an, a sort of ancient wisdom but in new scientific clothes of a different a different view of nature and our relationship or possible relationship with it so from a systems point of view of, of life and from a you know this Gaia perspective, how does that shape your own sense of identity? Um, how does that shape your understanding of human identity? 
Well, I don't... I might start to sound misanthropic, but I've got what some philosophers or Arnie Nace, the deep ecologist, mm-hmm. called wider identification. It's like I strongly identify with other living things. I mean, I I love the outdoors, as I said. I, I live in Devon. I, my chosen, you know... One of my chosen hobbies or pastimes is what we call fell running. So I'll go up onto Dartmoor and run around for hours. Um, in the, Whatever the weather's doing, I don't care. I can tough it out. And I love just being out there connecting with the, the rocks, with the, uh, the mosses, the sphagnum mosses, with, with that landscape. I kind of can run around. It sounds totally weird, I'm sure, but I can, if I choose to, I can run around. I, I prefer not to sort of over-scientist. I'm having a break from my work when I'm doing that. So I prefer not to sort of scientify while I'm running around. But if I choose to, I can be up there and I can kind of visualize and see the role that the lichens and the mosses are playing in weathering the rocks and affecting the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere and the cycling of the nutrients. So I can play with that in my mind's eye if I want to. Um, and that's perhaps a real privilege, actually. But it means that, yeah, I'm a, I'd like to think that I can attune or whatever words you want to use with, with my life support system. And um, I definitely uh, would put an intrinsic value on other other life and it's not that i'm misanthropic it's not that i don't care about um our fate either as individuals as a family or as a species uh it's just that you can draw a nice there's a certain comfort you can draw from that wider identification especially when you're in despair at the mess we're making of our current situation it it yeah <laughs> Max and I have spoken. Yeah, I was going to say Max has got a lot to say on this. I think let him do it. Yeah, I wonder if I could pick up on that because I guess you could say one of the hopeful tipping points that I'm working towards is uh, that of consciousness and um, working towards yeah. that shift towards that sense of I am a steward human being of an interconnected planet. Uh, and a Malcolm X quote has been really sitting with me recently start with the visceral, move to the cerebral, move to the political. And so, so much of my questions at the moment is how how do I make climate science visceral? How, particularly in the UK, so I spend time in Australia, where it's become visceral because vast ways of the country were on yeah. land. But for the UK, where the impacts aren't perhaps so obvious, how, how can I help people feel this and then go from there? Yeah, I, I hear you, Max, but there are some visceral impacts. You, we can quibble over the attribution, but there, there's been some spectacular flooding events. And I, I'll often, when I'm not running on Dartmoor, I sometimes just pop on the train down to Dawlish Warren and run along the coast through Dawlish and to Tynmouth and back. And I, I run along the repaired coast path and train line in the Dawlish front. But I can picture it when... The waves had smashed it out completely a few years back, and I was teaching my first iteration of a massive open online course on climate change. And I had on my course some people who had, had were in Dawlish Leisure Centre, uh, having to camp out because their house was unstable. And the, mm. you know they were on the front line of climate change potentially at the time. And we're having this extraordinary conversation between them and other international participants on the course. So. 
okay, it isn't visceral for everybody, but it has its visceral moments for some people. Um, but there's a positive visceral as well. There's the visceral of me, the bell runner, right? Of, oh, wow, the, the, it's hard to describe. You have to read John Muir or Henry David Thoreau or a another. You have to kind of appreciate that you're not alone in having these kind of, to know what it feels like to really be a part of nature. Um, was it, I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately, you know, <laughs> these kind of iconic um, voices from the past. But, you know, we can still connect with that in the present. So there's that, that's the positive visceral as well as there being the very, the very threatening or negative visceral. Both can be sources of motivation in my view. And you can tell that I get quite a bit from the positive visceral. Um, because I know the microbes are, are resilient. Um, I know that other species, complex creatures, are under grave threat from us and busy being destroyed. But I also know there's an incredible resilience in the biosphere or Gaia or whatever you want to call it. Um, and we ought to be like, uh, we'll come to this, I'm sure, but we need to be learning some lessons from that and that we can be celebratory about, about that at some level, perhaps. One of the questions I've... It's Sorry, Max. A human story as well. And I can imagine that yeah. having people who've just had their homes washed away must have been extremely powerful for people who thought they'd just signed up to a science based online course. Yeah, and we've just, we're obviously not in Lytton, Canada, but I think quite a lot of us have seen the footage of, a, of what happened with the heat dome and the extraordinary heat wave, and then boom, the forest fire is coming and it just, boom, 20 minutes, it's just burnt a place to the ground. Um, those, I fascinated in a macabre way, of course, by to just to see some of the real footage and the, and the voices that have survived that and come out from that, the visceral experience of, of being on that front line of climate change. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about, um... Took positive tipping points, to, um, and we talked about Gaia. Can we talk a little bit about Gaia 2.0? Yeah, so this was a this is a sort of a proposition or adventure with um, a friend, a great friend, a great thinker, Bruno Latour, who I've had the pleasure of interacting with in the last five years or so, and who's famous anyway for challenging the whole concept of modernism, etc and has been drawn in his own way to Gaia. So obviously we've connected through that. But I suppose what I was thinking as even 10 years ago when I was writing about this stuff was, um, hold on a minute, there's this incredible backstory of how uh, life, other life forms created and maintain a world in which we could evolve and have, and the biosphere as a whole has had this incredible nearly four billion year survival pedigree and it's is in many ways flourishing and has gone through some some nasty revolution or some revolutionary changes as we described it that got out the other end and what how does it su succeed how does it how does it persist in such an extraordinary way well there are some very basic ingredients to that so Gaia 2.0 is about asking the question, okay, what are those ingredients and what might we learn from them? 
to plot out a course of what a more flourishing future would look like for us as a species as an integral part of Gaia. So we just start with simple things like um, power, you know, your activities from the sun, ultimately. <laughs> you know, it's kind of obvious, but autotrophy, as we might call it, but that's, that's an anchor point. Then cycling of materials. The, what is the biosphere brilliant at? What's Gaia brilliant at? Uh, fantastic recycling of everything it needs to build its bodies to flourish. Because what's coming in and out of in out in out of volcanoes and back out to sediments is a tiny, tiny flux of material compared to what's spinning round and round within the system. So clearly we need to get smarter with our technological innovation looks really, really dumb because we kind of dig stuff out of the ground or fix it from the atmosphere and use it once and just let it leak away or chuck it away into landfill or whatever. This is insane. So we need to use some of that free energy from sunlight to power wildly more efficient recycling of all the materials we want to make new stuff out of as well as what we eat. Um, that sort of obvious stuff, but that's anchor stuff that you get from understanding how Gaia works. And then it gets a bit more subtle because you start asking questions about, well, how is this Gaia biosphere thing so resilient? Does it, are there any rules to how information flows and how power and structures are organized that we might learn from? And hey, presto, what do you learn? Well, again, semi-obvious, but on a simple level, you learn there's value in diversity, gives you a multitude of options when the world changes. So what was a minority thing might become suddenly the right, the better thing to do. Then you get more subtle stuff like uh, instead of hierarchically restricting the flows of information and structuring how you operate in, in that way, that can become very fragile. You look at the biosphere, you see a lot of horizontal transfer of information, whether it's genetic or now with us, obviously, language and so on and so forth. But you, you fundamentally see that it's perhaps more unusual to have very strongly hierarchically restricted information flow. So that might be a clue, as it were. To, to And then you've got to think, okay, we're in a time of profound change of our own making. Oh, we're going to have to sort of evolve our way through this. We've got to do some learning, basically. So how do we learn or evolve? Or how does the biosphere learn or evolve? Um, well, you can even get lessons on that because it, you know, without conscious foresight or purpose, it sort of demonstrates how you always want to have little diversity, islands of innovation bubbling up. Um, and you want to sort of support that uh, um, because when, when, the, when the change comes, it's out of those islands of innovation that either, either end up driving the change or if there's a change forced upon you, the asteroid or whatever, it's out of those islands of innovation that the future flourishing comes. Um, so I've described that in very, broad, I guess, broad brushstroke ways deliberately because it is hopefully at some level quite becomes quite fundamental and simple and intuitive stuff. But that's what Gaia 2.0 is like a working title is about. It's about what do we learn from this new worldview of nature that would help give us some clues we won't get all of the answers from nature. There would always be a danger in doing that because we do have some unusual qualities as humans. We are a little bit more collectively self-aware of how we're transforming the planet than I think any previous intelligent species. 
So I'm convinced, you know, octopus are super smart, dolphins are super smart, loads of other species are super smart, but I don't think they're collective, like I don't think the octopus collectively are aware of the effect of all octopuses on the planet or something. That's something special to us. And my, what I'm thinking fundamentally here is it's a new kind of feedback in Gaia where you have that collective self-awareness of the consequences of your actions. And then you consciously change your actions in response to the information about how you're messing up, quote unquote, or changing the whole system. That would be what you might call a teleological feedback or a self, a bit of adding a little bit of self-awareness to the Earth's self-regulation, as we put it. If we can get to that place, and arguably that's the big if and the big political question of our time, um, then we've given something fundamentally new to Gaia. We've given something that, you know, was we couldn't invoke before, but this self-aware self-regulation would then become a part of the system. And we would, we would have all these integral parts, like we would keep our sensing systems, like satellite sensing of the biosphere and everything else, you know, as, as special and as up-to-date as they could be, because that's all part of getting better at detecting where things are going wrong. Because at the bare minimum, as Bruno put it to me, you want to be, we're like, the, we're like the blind man with a white cane fumbling in the dark, but at least we've got the white cane. You want to have some kind of rudimentary way of spotting where things are going wrong, and then you can correct your mistakes. Even if you're going to keep making mistakes, you want to be able to correct them quickly. And at the bare minimum, that's something we should aim for. <laughs> and ironically, at the time of writing, we had particular people in political power who were, what part of their political agenda was actually to disable the um, scientific enterprise and the remote sensing of the planet, which was completely, this was Trump at the time, mm -hmm. completely perverse, but it was underway. So we, at the time we wrote, we were making a specific, uh, sub, sub, not too subtle political point as well. Uh, I'd love us to get to a place better than just correcting our mistakes. But even if we were there in a place where we could spot and correct our mistakes quickly, that's better than where we are now, arguably. And ideally, we want to get further than that. We want to, uh, we want to honestly be able to exercise some kind of foresight. <laughs> okay, you've just made me want to ask you so many different questions. Um, so, Guy 2.0, to me, that sounds an awful lot like biomimicry in the work of Janine Benyus, to a certain extent. Is that, is that fair? Well, I like that stuff. I would think it's perhaps a yeah, it's perhaps a gigantic version of biomimicry. Yeah. If you want to template, if you're trying to template the whole future, some fundamentals of the whole future of human society off the biosphere, it's like biomimicry taken to the greatest um, extent, perhaps. And I, like I said, I'm not saying we want to take all our lessons from from mm -hmm. Gaia because there are many subtleties as we were discussing to our human world and its foibles. Um, but there's, there's a phrase that always stuck with me from one of Jim Lovelock's books. Um, our future depends much more on a right relationship with Gaia than on the never-ending drama of human interest. And I think he praises it by saying, in Gaia, we are just another species. So a friend of mine, Peter Horton, took the first letters of in Gaia, we are just another species, and you get Iguajas. So there's one tribe, the Iguajas, that's me, I'm in that tribe, in Gaia, we're just another species. And then if you take never-ending drama of human interest, you get the Nidoi, and that's the other tribe, the Nidoi. Um, that's the one I don't want to be part of, but I've got a feeling it's got quite a lot of members yeah. still. 
I like that. Um, to what extent, though, we are a part of Gaia, right? So, well, exactly, yeah. And and you mentioned teleology, so you know this idea of having some sort of end point that things are driven towards, which scientists really don't feel comfortable about. But as soon as you make us the end point that is bringing that self-reflexive element to it, it's hard to escape that sort of like teleological kind of notion. I know it's been going around for years and years, different people talking about omega points or talking about... Yeah, um, I know. How so does that I, fit I, with you? Well, I have sort of mixed feelings that my own to, about all of that because I've spent, you know, in my exploratory younger years i spent time hanging out with i did a course with arnie nace the deep ecologist which was absolutely fantastic wow at darlington hall and schumacher college but it's kind of top nest it's in devon it's a kind of uh middle i call it the kind of middle class hippie community um i'm despite how i may sound but that's not really me <laughs> so i don't really want to go down the intellectual tradition of Teilhard de Chardin and these other kind of thinkers. This just doesn't, it just isn't me. It doesn't float my boat. That's not the tree I'm trying to bark up here. And I am, you know, so I am sort of a scientist through and through perhaps. I, I don't, you know, there was no conscious foresight or purpose on the part going on in, in Ghana at that level. And there, there hasn't, there isn't yet, there hasn't been, and there may never be. And that's fine we might be deluding ourselves a little bit about how much foresight we really exercise. When you look at our performance in terms of repeatedly making mistakes, innovating, but then cocking the environment up in some new way that, um, that somebody somewhere said it's going to go wrong in this way, but everyone just ignored them and says, let's do it anyway. We repeat that mistake over and over and again with you know, 10, 20 case studies in the last century um, there's little little sign that that this that we're as smart as we think we are, and that, but so yeah, I, I'm now giving a slightly counterpoint view, but I suppose yeah, I don't I don't believe fundamentally we are the be all and end all. Far from it. Um, I, believe, I think I've taken Lovelock to heart in that sense mm. as well. Or we're on the same page. But I don't also, but I don't totally dismiss us either. Just as Jim and Lynn. Margulis wouldn't have done either. They would always have explained or conceded, if you like, the possible potentials that humans, or in the case of Jim's recent writing, artificial intelligence that we've created might might bring, um, which is a fun scientific, you know, science fiction flight of fancy. I suppose the key point is we are now collectively aware of, of the predicament we put ourselves in it is deeply political as well as many other things. And we do have to try and navigate through it. So it's all about using what cap what capabilities we have as humans to, to navigate what's going to be a possibly tumultuous journey. And yeah, in terms of the vision of the endpoint, well, that is the fund that is the important thing that we can only, it's only worth talking about as something we would, uh, collectively, I suppose, find some kind of agreement on. You know, what is what? What do we broadly want together as a as a vision of future flourishing? And of course, we'll have disagreements, but but that's that's what Latour, Bruno Latour calls the sort of politics of the day, getting down to earth, as he calls it. Um, 
how are we going to land, as he puts it, safely on Earth? In the, um, and that's what I want to be part of. I just mm -hmm. want to, yeah, I think that's why we're talking. We all want to be part of having that open discourse. Ask, okay, one final question, which brings us to the, the last area that I wanted to talk about. You mentioned then um, meeting and working with Arnie Ness, who um, mm. amazing deep ecologist. One of his quotes stays with me all the time um, uh, when prompted um, about his pessimism. But being accused of being a pessimist, his response was, oh, no, 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 I'm not a pessimist at all. I'm an optimist. I'm just an optimist for the 22nd century, not the 21st. <laughs> how does how does that sit with you and what is your your balance of optimism and pessimism and given all that we've just spoken about Gaia 2.0 and biomimicry and this idea that nature creates conditions that are conducive to life to what extent do you have any optimism that we can learn from all these mistakes that we've made that in actual fact perhaps there is a great deal of learning that's gone on as a result of these huge problems and that if when we get through this that new knowledge that we've developed would enable us to live in a way that perhaps we could start to create conditions more conducive for life well yeah you said it nicely Rob I am that kind of optimist I might even describe myself as a sort of born optimist that I've, I've always there's always some kind of inner optimism or chink of it driving me um that somehow tied up with this calling to to whatever you want to call it this caught this calling i must have felt to study gaia and to, to immerse myself in that um and i keep hold of that in the dark nights of the soul it may be a of course a sanity and survival uh strategy as well although not a bad one to hold on to some kind of uh constructive optimism in myself um, because otherwise, as you were saying earlier, what are your options? Well, one option is just the nihilism, despair um, option that I appreciate. I think perhaps a growing number of people are starting to take in the face of the evidence on climate change and the like. And tragically, we see a younger generation mm -hmm. starting to get uh, this, for whatever the phrase is, but climate... Uh, um, no, I can't think of it. Eco-anxiety. Eco-anxiety, yeah. I mean, I, I feel their pain, and I, I suppose I'll, I feel possibly slightly responsible for it, and therefore I also feel slightly responsible to try and somehow show people, take people to the place where you can find the optimism we've just described. That, it, yeah, it's going to be messy and unpredictable, but they're still a chance to learn through this process to come out into something extraordinary that might be beyond some of our imaginings. Um, but we can, we, we're not going to get there without some conscious, decisive action and effort and some fundamental changes in our mainstream thinking. So that's why I'll just keep plugging away at, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, whatever I can do to, to try and develop that or, or spread that word or join, get other people to join in. And I, I well remember Arnie Nace and when was it? I think it was 1995. I was doing a two-week course with him and he would 
he's a rock climber. He loved nature and the outdoors in the same way. We had a lot of common interests and pursuits. I can't remember if we went scrambling or climbing together, but he would, he would, instead of walking into the lecture or room, which happened to be on the ground floor through the door, he would often climb in through the window. And I just, I, what I really loved with, with Arnie Nace was this, he'd used his philosophical skills to say, let's try and connect our deepest values and feelings through in a coherent way to our actions. And that's where his deep ecology platform was born from. And I remember spending a couple of weeks in 1995 where as a group learning together, we rewrote a new kind of deep ecology platform. I could probably find it in my files. It had a bit more of a Gaia flavor than the original because for obvious reasons. But I just thought it was the, that exercise is a really powerful one for any one of us to do. Um, and it's one I might actually return to, or maybe it's one, you know, we, I'd invite everyone to, mm. to do. Well, I've, I've often, it's, so I've often asked, what happened to deep ecology? Where did it go? Like, it seems to have petered out to a certain extent in, in conversations I've been having anyway. Well, I think I, from my side, I've tried to take, keep hold of what I learned from it. Maybe we're not just, maybe we're not using the label deep ecology, but I certainly, as I said, I really, I've seen the same core idea starting to resurge in corners of the academy or academia or whatever, as you do, but without the label, but a, a dawning re-realization that if we don't address our fundamental values and, and connect those through to our practical actions, we don't really have a coherent platform for change. We can't expect change to happen magically just because you tell people to change or you appeal to some kind of cursory thing like ecosystem service valuation or whatever, you know, let's just monetize, you know, the, what, what nature does for us and then we're magically going to behave differently and everything will be all right. That's complete, in my view, that's, that's just a different road to hell, basically. Um, but if you fundamentally ask yourself, um, do I care about that silver birch tree because of some monetized notion of what it might do for my practical utility, functional welfare? Or do I just think, well, actually, that's got fundamental value in itself. And I'll hold on a minute. It's part of my, the oxygen supply and all and those, all those other good things. <laughs> well, that makes a really big difference. But it's, it's about asking those questions and going back to those basics of, OK, what do I fundamentally value and can I connect through from that to my actions and that then even if it just makes you face up to your own cognitive dissonance and we all carry some of that it's an incredible powerful exercise to do right <laughs> if you um because then you like you have to level with yourself when you you look at yourself and you're like did i fly to a conference why did i do that you know <laughs> or whatever um as always, thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe as this really helps other people find us and we love hearing what you have to say too. Remember, as scary as many of these topics are, the future hasn't happened yet and we do still get to choose the best paths to take. So stay tuned, keep sharing and keep believing. Positive tipping points are coming. We just need to keep on finding new paths to reach them. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.